Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today I'm speaking with Roman Lopez, a PhD student at Berkeley, and Gabriel Misraki, a master's student at Ecole Polytechnique. And we will be talking about SCVI, a model for single cell sequencing data. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Uh, hi, Roman. Uh, thank you very much for uh, for having us in the podcast. It's, uh, it's very exciting. Hi, uh, Roman. Very nice to be in the podcast. Very excited to talk with you and um, hi to our listeners. So I think uh, we've covered single cell sequencing in general uh, a few times on this podcast. And I think by now people are more or less familiar with the concept. But I'm curious when uh, you started to work in SCVI and uh, it's, it's been a few years already. What was the landscape back then i think there were quite a few tools already to analyze single cell sequencing data what could one do at the time and what couldn't one do and like what was the uh, motivation for uh, for starting to work in scbi um that's a very good question so basically uh, i started um thinking about scbi um when i was visiting the um, the Harvard Medical School, uh, especially the systems biology department with Alan Klein. Um, and over there, I, I was basically, um, looking at how people were analyzing these data sets. Um, and I saw that, um, the main streamline was basically, um, uh, taking these matrices of counts, uh, normalizing them, um, with different ways and just trying to find the best that can work, uh, using a PCA and then trying to visualize and cluster the data. Uh, and I could see that there were other algorithms uh, that were very tailored to the area. So, um, let's say, uh, three, four years ago, uh, single cell transcriptomics was already, um, uh, very crowded in terms of computational methods. Um, but most of the methods, um, that were, were either very simple or, or tailored to the data, but not scalable. Um, and also one other thing is that um, there were a lot of different tasks that you would like to perform with single cell data. For example, yeah, so you would like to normalize, you would like to, a common theme is also to impute the zero in the, in the matrix, or you would like to um, cluster, find cell types, uh, perform differential expression. And uh, for all these type of tasks, basically you would have um, a different algorithm and even a different software. Um, and so... Um, um, yeah, it, it was kind of, um, a challenging to understand, uh, what were the different assumptions of all these algorithms. Uh, and so the idea of, um, of SCVI, uh, comes into this, um, dual aspect. Um, first of all, we wanted a method that was tailored for single cell data, but that was very fast. Uh, and second, we wanted to achieve, um, what I like to call model consistency which is this idea that um, with the same graphical model, uh, we would like to perform uh, maybe not extensively all the tasks, but at least um, a very large subset of them. Um, and so, for example, for the scalability, we were um, really interested in this um, uh, 1.3 million uh, cells uh, data set from 10x genomics. Um, and we were also seeing that... Um, if we were able to build an algorithm that could uh, correct for batch effect on a very, very large scale, uh, would enable um, uh, very large studies and working with the hum human cell atlas data or some other kind of consortium. 
Um, and second, uh, we, we worked on, uh, on how to design this graphical model so that, uh, yeah, you could perform, uh, uh all these tasks, um, on, with the same software, but also with the same model somehow. And, um, so on the scalability, we, uh, one of the main results of our paper. And, um, so a lot of, uh, papers after, I mean, uh, in the same time than us that were also developing these VAEs came up with the same, like, scalability, which is essentially that you can, uh, analyze, uh, this one million cell data set, uh, in, uh, in around an hour. Um, and second, uh, in terms of, uh, model consistency, we arrived to a regime where uh, we were able to, to perform, uh, a certain range of tasks, uh, and we were able to outperform, uh, uh, st st the state-of-the-art models in this task. One thing I wanted to clarify, you mentioned the graphical model a couple of times, yeah. and uh, lest people think that uh, this has anything to do with graphics, it doesn't, right? It's a specific statistical kind of model. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's, it's an idea borrowed from, uh, from the, you know, the meeting of like uh, statistics and computer science. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a kind of, it's a family of, uh, probability distributions. So it's essentially a modeling tool for, uh, by Bayesian models. Yeah. And this, you have this graph. Why? Because, uh, in the graph, uh, all the nodes are random variables. Um, and all the edges are, are uh, encoding conditional independence. So it's, it's a modeling tool essentially. And so you were dissatisfied with the variety of tools, each tackling a different aspect of single cell analysis. And uh, someone else could have written a single tool, uh, which would do like all of these different analysis, like have many modes of operation and like using uh, similar statistical assumptions for them. Uh, but you went even farther than that, and you developed sort of a super model to to rule them all, so to say. And uh, can, can you talk about like what SCVI is and and uh, what it does? Um, yeah, very good question, Roman. Um, what SCVI does and how one might use it. Um, for starters, SCVI is designed for inference on single cell data. Uh, one of the tasks. Um, concerned is dimensionality reduction. So often um, single cell data will have um, for, a, for a single cell uh, thousands of genes um, expressed. So you'll have numbers for, for each cell. You have a thousand of numbers for each cell. And um, these numbers can be um, hard to um, use for interpretation and analysis. So what you want is to get um, a lower um, number of uh, a lower set of numbers, a smaller set of numbers to capture the same uh, information. So, what we do is um, build uh, what we call a, a latent space that is basically um, containing these, uh, say, ten numbers for each cell instead of a thousand uh, gene counts. Um, this. Um, this uh, representation of uh, single cell data is all the more uh, useful because it is designed um, within the SCVI uh, graphical model to only capture the biological signal and not the technical noise. So um, one of the other tasks that one can perform is um, gene count imputation. 
So either, so one can impute either the observed counts or a normalized, um, shall we say, version of the counts. The normalized version is especially useful because, again, it's um, it stems from the uh, latent uh, representation that we were talking before and only contains um, the biological signal, which is disentangled from the, the technical um, noise or the technical zeros one usually observes in single-cell data. Um, these um, these normalized counts are especially uh, useful for downstream tasks. One of these tasks, for example, is um, differential expression. For instance, um, this means that we want to find for um, a two specific population of cells um, marker genes for one against the other. So we're going to use the um, the normalized counts that contain the biological signal to uh, try and figure that out using Bayesian hypothesis testing, mostly. Another task that SCVI can perform is uh, dataset harmonization. So this is this basically amounts to um, removing the batch effect from uh, a set of datasets that you have. And uh, if those datasets are initially um, close enough, the the um, objective is to for the for the actual cell types um, to overlap in, for instance, the um, uh, LIN space that SCVI builds. Also, so we kind of covered what SCVI does in a very uh, brief and non-exhaustive way. And now let's talk about how it does it and how one can uh, use SCVI. So very importantly, um, we put a lot of work in our uh, in our code base that is available um, open source on GitHub. And uh, every, every I mean, it's a, it's a tens of people all around the project that have worked on it and have made a great effort to make it as useful as it is right now. And we, um, we, um, we make it a point to keep it up to date and put all our models, even the most recent research on there. So please, please take a look, feel free. You'll find some interesting stuff. Um, importantly, we have a lot of, um, ready-to-train datasets available on the code base. So if you want to try it at CBI, we have all of your 10x and etc. available, um, ready to go. Just a one-liner of code to get them. We provide a lot of uh, notebooks and example, ranging from our basic tutorial to a full tutorial on our hyperparameter tuning uh, feature and also on our latest model, GIMVI, for, gen- for missing gene imputation. And finally, we provide samples of code to interface um, SCVI with ScanPy and the data format, as well as uh, the LoomPy data format and libraries, which are um, well-known uh, single-cell libraries that are very um, Additionally, the code base is built so that one can, um, as easily as possible, develop new tools on top of SCVI. This means that we have an API oriented towards machine learning researchers, um, which basically amounts to having a consistent uh, terminology with machine learning frameworks, which makes the code base um, easy to um, take on and easy to read and understand. And we provide um, general abstractions allowing for fast uh, 
prototyping of new model ideas or trainer research ideas in general. So in indeed, yeah, um, SCVI can do um, a lot of different tasks, uh, but um, uh, it doesn't come for exactly for free. Uh, for example, the price of having um, a pretty complex model is that um, it needs a lot of data to, to fit. Uh, and there are a lot of instances, especially in the... Um, in the early setting of uh, single cell RNA sequencing protocols, uh, for which um, not a lot of measurements, which means cells, are available. Um, and so uh, for this, uh, uh, using a lower complexity model, um, such as uh, a PCA or alternative method, uh, might, might, I mean, will work better than, uh, than SCVI. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, the price to pay uh, for having such a model. Right. So if I understand correctly, the the core idea of SCVI is to use this statistical model that we will talk about a little bit later to basically reduce the very high dimensional space of the gene counts and gene expressions, which has um, thousands or tens of thousands of numbers per each uh, cell to this very low dimensional but information rich representation and then you can do all these different things they become much easier things like differential expression and imputation harmonization uh, they become much easier once you reduce the data to this small representation and uh, if, you, if you use SCVI do you ever sort of interact with that low dimensional representation can you can you ask for it yeah so you're right it's an important part of SCVI to provide this uh, lin code of the data which is rich in information and that is uh, disentangled from um, some part of the technical noise um and um, indeed, it is uh, it is possible to uh, access it um, using the the, um, the code that we that we provide. You just call um, you just call the method of, of our um, posterior class, which represents the posterior di distribution that you obtain after training the SCVI model that allows you to perform inference. And you call this and get your um, the latent representation for your for your data. Right, so you, you can do a lot of things out of the box. You can do a lot of sort of standard analyses, but if you need something custom... Yeah, you can com completely access every stage of the graphical model, every node. So you can sample the latent space, um, the normalized counts, the, observed, the, the imputed observed counts. Um, you can sample all of these nodes that are in the graphical model representing SCVI. So when one uses SCVI. So far, we're talking just from the user's perspective. We'll, we'll move to the developer's or statistician's perspective a bit later. Mm -hmm. But from the user's perspective, uh, you run this tool on your data. So what, what kind of data does it accept? Does it accept like a CSV file of, uh, of expression counts or... So we have interfaces for um, pretty much any uh, format that you can think of, um, be it CSV, um, uh, H5, uh, LumPy, really any any kind of data. And we provide um, ready-to-train API for some of these 
data sets. For example, the data sets that are hosted on the 10x website can be imported directly using only a single line of code that will download and pre-process the data for you. Um, so really any kind of any kind of data. Uh, if you have uh, some some type of data that doesn't that can't be used, uh, please mention it on the GitHub repo. We'll make it available as as soon as possible. That's pretty cool. And uh, as with almost any statistical model, there are certain parameters that you have to set. They're called hyperparameters. They're not estimated from the data. They are set by the uh, by the user by the statistician that uh, basically determined the specifics of the model, the specific form of the model. Gabriel, I, I know that you recently worked on uh, automating that away. So even though you, like in theory, you need to set them based on your expert knowledge, in practice, very few people have that expert knowledge. And so you developed uh, a method to basically find the the best hyperparameters. Can you talk about a little bit about that work? Of course. Yeah, with pleasure. So yeah, this is one of our, our most recent tool. But uh, let me maybe give a bit of, of con- a bit more context uh, to our listeners. So yeah, what are what are hyperparameters? So indeed, as you said, you with a machine learning model, you have um, two different types of parameters, you have uh, the learnable parameters that are, um, for instance, the weights of your neural network um, that will be uh, uh, that will be optimized using, uh, for example, uh, your stochastic uh, gradient descent method or uh, any 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 training method, and um, uh, so these are parameters that you can differentiate your model against and and optimize this way. But you also have a set that we call hyperparameters that are essentially the parameters that are not differentiable against and that are um, that are set um, by the user as you said these uh, these parameters include for example the parameters of your optimizer such as the learning rate or uh, more importantly your the model architecture so for a neural network it could be the number of hidden layers or the number of hidden neurons etc so these are very yeah these are so these are very important uh, variables. So the motivation to um, uh, perform um, an automated and optimized setting of these, these uh, hyperparameters is is as follows. The first uh, first point is to obviously maximize performance of the model. So um, for starters, you choose a metric to optimize and then you um, perform this um, this hyperparameter optimization process to get the best set of hyperparameters with respect to that metric. In our case, we tend to uh, do that to maximize data fit, which is in our case a negative uh, marginal log likelihood. And we believe that this should help for most of uh, downstream tasks. The other uh, motivation for this new tool is um, to have a way to perform principled model comparison with SCBI. Because um, such as uh, uh, Hugh and, and Green mentioned in their paper on, on, um, on uh, the importance of hyperparameter search for VAEs, uh, researchers tend to spend more time fine-tuning their model than those they compare themselves to. 
So, and in general, this is de detrimental to the comparing process, especially if competing methods have a high sensitivity to um, hyperparameters. And then this this is often the case. I mean, for example, on an um, image classification task, the same uh, the same CNN can be trained to near perfection as well as complete randomness just by changing the hyperparameters. So this is yeah this is the main motivation for the the development of this new tool. So you and, want to avoid uh, a case when uh, someone develops a competing method and they claim that they outperform SCVI, whereas in practice they spend a lot of time tuning their hyperparameters, whereas like yours are set, set to some arbitrary values. And uh, when the uh, setter of the hyperparameter is supposed to be an expert, that particular person is not an expert in SCVI. They, the only thing they want is to compare to SCVI. So they just set some random hyperparameters. It doesn't perform well, and that's good for them. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying that's done on purpose. It's just a natural behavior to spend more time on your your own model than the one you're trying to compare yourself to. So, right. yeah, in order to alleviate this problem, we just provide an automated uh, framework to perform hyperparameter setting with SCVI. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's exactly that. And And, of course, the end user also benefits because she doesn't have to... Uh, bother and uh, think about these hyperparameters and uh, have her research jeopardized because um, she she may not have picked the best values. Yeah, of course. And yeah, the user can maximize their performance with respect to the metric of their choice. And that's good for them because they don't have to spend any time uh, trying out a combination of parameters, uh, and which is a, can be a very cumbersome and and long process. Yeah, so what, what does this look like from the user perspective? Do, do they just type like dash dash auto and it just does the magic? So basically, um, we have um, a default way of doing, of performing a hyperparameter search for SCVI, which, so using that default behavior is, amounts to five lines of code. So you pick a data set, you pick a model, pick a trainer, um, trainer, I mean that we have some models, some SCVI models are uh, completely unsupervised, some are semi-supervised, so you, you pick one of those trainers, supervised or uh, unsupervised or semi-supervised, and then you um, you just call the, yeah, the tune my model method and give those as input. Maybe give um, a budget on how many evaluation will you allow, and the the process itself um, will uh, give you will output you the the best set of hyperparameters for your um, for your uh, query. Knowing that uh, in that case we provide a default uh, search space for the hyperparameters. That means that, for example, we will allow. Um, the number of hidden layers in the SCVI neural nets to vary from one to five, and and we have a set of defaults like that for every important uh, hyperparameter in in SCVI. So that's the default behavior, and um, what's um, so yeah, and you can you can customize this behavior uh, in in many ways. Uh, we detail this in our uh, in our tutorial on on. Uh, on the, the GitHub repo, but in essence, you can um, use a custom search space for your parameters. If you want the learning rate to range, the learning rate to range differently than the default values, you can just input that, and uh, you can use um, 
um, cust you can even use custom objective function, which means that you can pretty much do anything. But more importantly, when I what I want to point out is that um, these uh, this um, optimization process uh, leverages automatically leverages every GPU available on your mesh on your machine and is going to run in parallel. So this is um, a great way to speed up your hyperparameter search in a seamless and a completely automated way. Sweet. And uh, you also wrote a blog post about that, which we'll uh, link to on, on the website. Yes. Uh, but let's dive into the technical details. So um, that magical statistical model that we mentioned a few times already, um, what are the sort of essential uh, features of that model? How is it different from the models that uh, have been proposed before? So ab about the model, um, uh, there are uh, maybe a couple of different um, steps uh, we, can, uh, uh, we can take to explain um, uh, SCVI. Uh, I think um, explaining um, SCVI from scratch in uh, two minutes is uh, quite a challenge uh, that I, I, I can try to accept. Um, but basically, so we can cut this down into small chunks. Um, so SCVI um, relies on uh, variational inference, and I, I will try to explain the, the basic idea, uh, statistical idea of variational inference. And then also SCVI belongs to a family of, um, uh, it's a variational autoencoder. So I can try to explain a little bit, um, uh, what is the autoencoder and what is the rationale behind it. Uh, and then once I explain this, I will try to explain why SCVI is, um, is not a vanilla autoencoder or not a vanilla variational autoencoder. So those are a lot of terms, but I hope that it breaks it down into small pieces. So first, let's try to understand um, what is an autoencoder. Um, so an autoencoder uh, is a, is an old idea uh, from uh, neural network research. Um, it has been used in uh, in many many areas, and the main idea is um, let's let's say I have some uh, I work with uh, with data. Uh, I have some, I'm in the unsupervised learning framework, which means I don't have any labels. I don't have anything to predict. Um, and so might as well try to predict myself. So that's the basic idea. So for this, um, for this simple scheme, you need uh, two functions that are called uh, neural networks, uh, because in this case, these are neural networks. Um, and, um, so you take your your input variable and you map it to an, uh, an abstract variable. And then from this abstract variable, you try to reproduce your input. Um, and, uh, and then you minimize a loss, which is um, the reconstructed out uh, input versus uh, the original input. Um, and here is the abstract like um, variable is called, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's equivalent to a latent variable or what we call the embeddings, all these type of objects. Um, and it's supposed to summarize the information from the input into preferably, uh, most of the time it works better if the intermediary variable is uh, low dimensional, which means it has a low number. And so auto this is an autoencoder and it's linked to this uh, literature of like a compression and, and all these kind of things. And for uh, a basic example is that um, 
if the loss I was referring to is a quadratic loss, um, and the neural network are actually linear, so like uh, with zero hidden layers, this is basically a PCA. So an autoencoder uh, is just um, a nonlinear version of a PCA. Right, and and it sort of makes sense why this is a good fit for SCVI because this uh, mirrors what we already described about dimensionality reduction in latent spaces. That's what you're trying to do, trying to reduce this uh, gene space of, of the dimension 20,000 or something to a small dimensional um, space. And uh, one way to achieve it is to have an autoencoder have this pair of uh, neural networks that uh, work together to reduce uh, to, to, to map the high dimensional space to the low dimensional space and then the low dimensional space back to the high dimensional space to minimize the uh, the discrepancy. Exactly, exactly. But um, there are quite a bit of uh, challenges uh, with applying these autoencoders to single cell data. Um, and basically because these autoencoders are a bit too simple, either you need to normalize your data beforehand because otherwise... You will, the autoencoder will try to also predict the, let's call them confounded variables, such as the library size, such as the batch effects and all these things. Um, and so if you just try to reproduce your input, but your input has batch effects, um, your latent variables are not going to exist. I mean, your, yeah, the, the, it's called the bottleneck also, the variable in the middle are not going to be very interesting because they're, they are going to contain the library size and they're going to contain the batch effects. And so somehow the reason, uh, so SCVI, for example, has like, uh, two, it's kind of, um, there are like two autoencoders, if you will, uh, for the different variables. Um, and the reason we need several of them is that, um, we want to do this statistics, um, gymnastic of separating out the, you know, the, some different type of variation in the data. And so, um, and so also, and because we didn't want to normalize the data beforehand, but we thought that um, the models should learn how to normalize it itself. Uh, that's why we, we stand out from this uh, autoencoders and we wanted to add um, a little bit more statistics to it. And, and so that's why uh, we introduced this um, Bayesian model and this inference framework. So now let, maybe let me try to explain a the little bit of, a, uh, give a little bit of a flavor of what variational inference is. Um, and so basically, um, in, in a CVI, we, de we designed this, uh, so I was talking earlier about this graphical model in which we can enforce some variables to be conditionally independent or marginally independent. And so, for example, uh, the way we design a CVI, we would like the, is this um, uh, bottleneck I was talking about earlier, or this like um, uh, low dimensional representation. We would like it to be marginally, so like independent from the batch, for example. So you would like it to be independent uh, from uh, whether it was sequence sequence from 10x or with SmartSeq2 or other technology. We would like it to be also independent from the library size. So we need to model the library size. Um, and then we thought a lot about um, what kind of conditional distribution would would fit uh, to to model the counts. Um, and I can talk about that a bit uh, a bit later. But basically, once you have this model, uh, well, you need to perform inference. But because um, the model we built is uh, is not um, as simple 
uh, and in, it doesn't satisfy some basic uh, statistical um, assumptions that you need for uh, what what we call tractable inference, which means you can we can uh, learn the model easily. Uh, then we need to resolve to some kind of approximate inference. And this app- and now you're talking specifically about Bayesian inference, right? Because from from the point yeah. of view of autoencoders, which are usually optimized like using a generic optimization routines, it doesn't really matter what what your model is. You just you just optimize. You just fit it to the optimizer. Yeah. But yeah. once you shift your perspective into the Bayesian inference, then there are certain models that are. Uh, well suited for more like analytical inference, um, and and you're saying once we add this all complex and consider it from the Bayesian perspective, which which means that we want to learn not just the point estimates of the parameters, but the posterior distributions of the parameters. Now now it becomes expensive to to apply exactly. something like Markov chain Monte Carlo to it. Exactly, exactly. And so basically, um, where the variational inference jumps in is to exactly turn the Bayesian inference exercise into an optimization problem. And that, so that's where it gets inter- interesting in which basically, um, instead of learning, instead, so the way we would do Bayesian inference is to maximize the likelihood of the data. And this is something we, we cannot do. We would need to resolve to Monte Carlo, which is very expensive. And so instead, what we do is that instead of optimizing the likelihood itself of all the data points, we can maximize allow a bind on the likelihood, uh, which is something that is uh, always um, less than uh, than the likelihood of the data. And there is a simple way to parameterize these things with an approximate distribution, which is the approximation of the posterior. Um and basically, uh, this lower bound is going to be tight, which is something good. It's going to be uh, very close to the data likelihood, if and only if the approximate posterior is equal to the true posterior. And, turn, and the relationship between this basic uh, statistical idea and the autoencoders is that um, uh, so this uh, has been decried by, by two papers that describe VAEs uh, from 2014. Um, and basically... Um, what you would like to do is um, instead of learning a variational distribution for each of the data points, you're going to parameterize uh, the parameter of the variational distribution by neural networks. Um, And so all these networks that encode the variational distribution are called encoders. So as in the autoencoder, you had an encoder and a decoder. So all the variational inference, uh, if you want uh, uh, parameterizers, or the or the parameter for the variation distributions or the encoders, and all the parameters for the generative model are in this decoder, uh, and that's where we stand from uh, autoencoder to variational autoencoder. Um, and it turns out that even if in the original formulation of the VAEs, uh, people would use only um, uh, basically two latent variables. I mean, uh, two two variables, one for the observed th- uh, things and one for the uh, hidden things, and they would make inference over this type of object. Um, in a CVI, we try to leverage this basic idea from Bayesian model to cont- and to perform inference over this um, this ideal model that would disentangle uh, library size, batch effects, and that will retain only what we hope to be the biological information. 
And uh, speaking of Bayesian inference, I'm curious how you came to the decision to to treat this as a full Bayesian model. Uh, so even even though your model specification is in the form of Bayesian network and uh, you, you you specify the generative model, so you you didn't decide just to find the most probable point estimates of all the parameters, but you decided to perform this full variational inference. And I guess part of the reason is the connection that you mentioned with variational autoencoders. But um, what were the like? Are, are you a Bayesian by default? Or were there specific considerations that uh, moved you to to use Bayesian inference as opposed to like point estimates? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, so basically, um, if you look at the tasks that we're interested in performing for SCVI, most of them would not require um, this idea from variational inference. And there is a paper that that came out exactly in this. So a, a lot of um, papers that perform autoencoders or variational autoencoders came out at the uh, at the same time on bioarchive maybe fi- between 5 and 10 preprints um and uh and one example from Fabian Teyes lab uh they built an algorithm called DCA which is an autoencoder with um with the same type of loss that we use in SCVI uh but here you do not have this variational inference and so with the algorithm, you can perform a, a wide range of tasks, but there is something that you cannot do. And this is actually why we, we use this variational inference framework. And what you cannot do, um, is basically, um, estimate the uncertainty of the parameters, of course. And the re- and if you cannot do uncertainty of the parameters, then you cannot do differential expression. And so when we try to add more and more tasks to a CVI, we came to the conclusion that if we didn't add this latent variable to correct for the library size, uh, and, and we didn't use this, um, we didn't have this posterior uncertainty, then we couldn't do differential expression. So that was uh, one of the main motivations actually to use this, um, uh, these variational distributions and, and all these, and this type of thing. Okay. And uh, while we're on, on this topic of uh, differential um, expression, do you want to briefly explain uh, how exactly you, you approach that? Yes, of course. So um, so basically, dif- differential expression is, uh, is defined as um, I have two sets of cells um, and I want to find which genes are s- significantly different between uh, these two sets of cells. Um, and so there are different ways to think about it, but um, uh, because we try to remove this library size and we try to remove this batch effect uh, in SCVI, we are able in this graphical model to query, which means basically sampling. We're able to sample uh, many, many values of, uh, let's say, the mean of the negative binomial for each cell. Um, and so, for example, when we have a group of cells, then we can sample for each cell and for each uh, uh, parameters for the variational distribution. And then we can sample from um, the normalized in, uh, counts. We can sample many, many, many times and we can compare this, the distribution that outputs um, for a particular gene. We can compare it with the other set of cells, the other cell type. And basically what the algorithm do with that, it's going to look at the overlap 
how much the distributions overlap. And based on this, uh, it's going to give you a score. It's called the bias factor or likelihood ratio. And it's going to basically tell you, oh, very, um, with a lot of evidence, uh, this gene is very different than this one. Let's go back to the model itself. So now we have the two components. Uh, we know, or we can pretend we know what uh, autoencoders are, what variational inferences force is basically approximate way to, to perform Bayesian inference. Now, talk about, uh, about the model itself, like the, the graphical model, what are the essential features of that model? What, what is the structure of the model? So for this model, we need a, we essentially have a, a couple of variables. Um, we have some variables that are observed and some variables that are latent. So, um, for example, we have um, the observed counts that follow some distribution, and I, I will explain the assumption on the distribution. Um, we have the, the and, and we're going to model these observed counts. We have the the batch identifier that will will treat as observed, uh, but uh, we're going to condition on it, and this is because we condition on that that some of the other variables are going to be um, independent from it. Um, we have a, a, a hidden variable for um, the library size. So uh, we could, so the library size, you might tell me that this is a, an observed variable because it's sum of counts. Um, but somehow we, we wanted to treat the library size as random and putting a prior on it uh, to be able to regenerate uh, uh, the data. Um, but this is not uh, uh, this is not exactly obvious. Uh, we could also do it treated as observed. It's kind of a note. And then more, most importantly, we have this uh, variable for the latent space on which we also need to put a prior because we model as uh, unobserved. And um, uh, the prior we use uh, for this for SCVI is a isotropic normal prior, which means um, it's going to try to map all the cells. Into this cloud of point of uh, which looks like which needs to have a Gaussian density, um, and uh, and this we are actually doing some work uh, right now on how to change this prior, and we we already did did that with with other type of models, but um, but yeah, these are basically the all the variables that are in the model, um, and the way so to finish the definition of this model, we need to define the conditional probabilities or the conditional distributions, which are basically explaining how these variables interact together. And this is very important. And so basically, uh, we define the conditional distribution of the observed counts condition on everything else as a zero inflated negative binomial. Um, and so first, there is a topic of zero inflation in single cell transcriptomics. Uh, and we actually released a blog post about that. So uh, if you're interested, um, I highly encourage you to to read more about it. Um, but uh, what is the most in interesting is that um, uh, in the mean of the negative binomial, uh, we use uh, uh, a neural network that maps the latent space uh, uh, Z. I mean, yeah, well, let's call it Z because I've been talking about it for a long time. Um, and maps this value uh, to um, to a vector of uh, size gene exp I mean gene expression, 
but that is normalized in the sense that um, this it's, this vector is going to sum to one, uh, and then we're going to multiply it by this random variable that we we call library size. Um, and so before multiplication, that's what we call the normalized value. And that's, um, so this is supposed to be independent from library size and we can use it for differential expression. This is why we don't normalize the data into SCVI. Um, and downstream after the multiplication, we get the observed counts and this or the, the mean of the negative binomial. Um, and this is what you would use if you want to impute data, but uh, by taking into account the library size. Um, and then, yeah, so now we have defined fully what the SCVI model looks like. Right. So if I understand correctly, the trick here is to use a neural network to map your latent space into your almost observed space. So, so we mentioned before that mapping the latent space to the gene counts wouldn't be a very good idea. So instead, you map it to this intermediary space onto which you then apply all these corrections for batch effects, for the library size, and so on. And then and then you also apply like several distributions, like a Poisson distribution or a negative binomial or zero inflated yeah, negative yeah. binomial yes. to, to get the, the final counts, right? Yeah, yes, that's that's exactly. And this gives you a function that evaluates the probability or the likelihood of um, of, of your data, basically, right? That you can then use in optimization. Exactly. So, uh, so when when I said that um, uh, we allow upon the the likelihood uh, with this variational inference uh, in the resulting optimization uh, uh, bound, what we have is um, we have basically the likelihood of the prior, the likelihood of the conditional distribution of the counts given the the random variable. Um, and the random variable, usually they, we shouldn't be able to know them, but that's why we have this other neural network that are kind of able to guess them. And so, and these are the, what we call the variational networks. So this other family of, so there are the networks from the generative model that you just described that from, um, from the latent space are able to guess what is a dropout rate? We didn't talk about that, but yeah, there is another neural network to do that. A neural network to, to guess what are the almost gene expression level or the normalized gene expression level. Um, but there are also the other family of neural networks that from the observed data are able to guess what are the values of the latent variables. And so, for example, what is the value of the latent space and also what is the value of the library size? So those are the main things. How many neural networks do you have? Uh, so let me see. Uh, I always forget. So basically there is <laughs> one, uh, because you know, for each um, random variable, you need to, you need to encode the distribution. So for example, the posterior of the library size given the data is log normal. So you have one for the mean, one for the variance. Then for Z, same thing, one for the mean, one for the variance. Then you have one neural network, those four in the variational distribution. And then you need um, some neural network in the generative model, as I was explaining. One for the dropout rate and one for the um, the imputed count. So total is like six neural networks. And and do you optimize all of these in the in the same path? So you have all the hidden parameters in the neural networks 
and you have so it, it, are these the same parameters that define your sort of variationally posterior distribution or do you have a separate set of parameters that define the, the posterior distribution? Yes, so, so exactly. So in on this six, neur six neural nets, four of them define the variational distribution. So so w when you write this um, this bound, what you so there are different ways you can think about it. What some people would do uh, uh, would would be to uh, you know in kind of a, like an EM algorithm, uh, so or variational EM. So you would maximize the parameter of the generative model and then maximize the variational bound and take some steps in one, some steps in the other. Um, but, uh, with, with this, um, with, with this VAs, you can actually just, uh, just take steps, uh, over, over everything at the same time. And, uh, and it, it, but I understand that you took some steps to simplify your objective function, right? You so see, you marginalize away some of the parameters you're not interested in, right? And you, you do that analytically. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, this is for several reasons. So, uh, the way I like to describe uh, SCVI is by expanding. Um, so instead of talking about a zero inflated negative binomial, uh, I prefer to decompose this into. Uh, uh, for the zero inflation, you get a Bernoulli random variable. For the um, uh, for the negative binomial, you get a gamma and a compound between a gamma and a Poisson. And to explain exactly which contributes to what. I like to decompose all these zero inflated negative binomial, uh, into the parts. Uh, and then when you write it that, and, and I think it's, it's important actually to understand, uh, where does the library size gets in? Where does the batch effect gets in, extra? And when you write it like this, uh, before deriving, the, uh, you can, I mean, yeah, because you cannot make inference over, uh, these discrete random variables, it's, it's really difficult to have some, uh, some discrete unobservant variables with, with these VAs. Um, and so for example, uh, yes, yeah, zero inflation, whether it's active or not, uh, it's not exactly interesting for our purpose. What is more interesting would be, um, uh, what is the probability of zero inflation and, or at least, uh, that's already uh, enough of an indicator. And so, um, and so that's why we integrate these variables out and we get exactly what I was describing before, which is this, um, zero inflated negative binomial distribution. And so, and sometimes it's easier to present it the, the latter way. And w when you perform this type of uh, integrals before, at the, before inference, so this analytic uh, integration, it's exactly called um, uh, collapsed variation or inference. And uh, since you mentioned zero inflation a few times, let's, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. So, uh, I think it's it's a somewhat controversial topic because uh, a lot of people um, tend to agree that it exists, but then some disagree. So uh, I remember there was a, um, a blog post from Valentine Svensson where he said that uh, there is sort of no evidence for zero inflation. I think that was specific to a specific uh single cell sequencing protocol or uh or system um then uh, there was a recent uh, very recent preprint i don't remember by whom where they said that uh basically yeah there, there's no uh, reason to to zero inflate and uh i think you recently or, or your lab 
recently published also a blog post on on the subject. So, so what do you think? Uh, is is zero inflation necessary? Is is it real, or do people sort of over overestimate it and and its effect? So, uh, thank you for asking. So, first, um, I would like to give a disclaimer that uh, uh, I am not um, f- working with. Uh, with the experiments myself. Um, and so I am not exactly an expert on, uh, how you would give uh, experimental, uh, you know, intuition about, um, what is zero inflation. Mm, and I think it's, it's fair for people to be quite skeptical about that. Uh, however, I can talk about from the computational perspective and from a statistician's uh, side that, um, a given data, we can we can basically make a hypothesis testing, and we can uh, give some evidence. Uh, and so, what we did in the, for example, the previous blog post uh, that uh, uh, Oscar and Pierre worked on here in the lab, we try to to understand. Uh, okay, let's take some data set. Uh, for example, let's fit um, uh, SCVI uh, with a negative binomial distribution. And then SCVI with a zero inflated negative distribution, uh, sorry, zero inflated negative animal distribution. And let's see, um, which one wins. So based, and there are a lot of different ways to do this in a principled fashion. Uh, it's called model selection. Uh, and what we see is that, um, we took, so Valentine Svensson, uh, tried to work with these negative control data sets, uh, with, uh, ERCCs, which are like basically, uh, I'm not sure it's even synthetic RNA, but, um, it's like, yeah, basically, um, uh, these are not real cells and in a sense, um, and we, which, so we try to, to, to see what, what can happen. And, um, basically on, on these, um, synthetic data sets or on this, uh, ERCC negative control data sets, we find that, um, they are actually negative binomial, which means that, uh, yeah, there is evidence to say that, uh, Negative binomial is a better model to describe this than zero inflated negative binomial. Uh, however, something, um, uh, a bit striking is that when we took uh, on, on our code base, we, we took like five or six data sets we had. Um, and we see that it's the opposite. So whenever you have some real cell types and some real biology, uh, it looks like zero inflation provides actually a better, ex- a better way to explain the data. And what this means is that um, it, it, it completes a little bit um, what uh, Valentine was trying to, to explain in his manuscript, which says that um, there is no evidence that uh, uh, on the technical side, in what happened in the experiment, uh, there is no technical effect that gives rise to zero inflation. Um, however, uh, there might be some... Um, some evidence that, uh, biologically speaking, uh, there is a process that is happening, which is uh, similar to, uh, which is giving rise to zero inflation in the data. Um, and we're actually investigating this a little bit more. Um, we don't have clear hypothesis, but we, we would like to, to investigate, um, whether this, um, this zero inflation would be just, uh, explained by, um, uh, just basically some model of uh, transcriptional bursting, uh, in which, um, you have some intrinsic noise, uh, in gene expression, uh, which in, in, inside a cell, the number of counts actually describe a hypergeometric distribution or a, or a beta Poisson model. Uh, and in that case, uh, depending on the kinetic of the promoter, whether the gene is on or off, 
you can actually have some like two modes for uh, for the gene expression and maybe because of limited sensitivity um the lowest mode gets just uh, squashed down to uh, to zero and that's what is this zero uh zero overabundance might be mm-hmm. so until here is this very uh uh, conceptual, uh, but uh, this is what we are trying to to understand. Very cool, and uh, we'll uh, we'll link to the blog post to that blog post as well. Um, and uh, another interesting aspect of of your model that you mentioned is its scalability, meaning that it can process the larger amounts of data uh, more efficiently than the alternative methods and uh, that's a bit counterintuitive because your model is not a very simple one right i think uh, some of the earlier models were much simpler and didn't have as many neural networks and yet you not only made the model more expressive more um, complex uh, but also improved the the scalability How, how is that possible so first um uh there are different uh, uh bottlenecks when you design an algorithm. Um and uh uh from the pure uh, computational perspective you wanna ask the question um how am, am I gonna implement my model? So depending on which language you use or depending if you interface with uh, you know with C or C uh, you might have some huge speed ups. So that's the first thing. Um, it's a little bit uh, less, uh, I mean, not naive, but a little bit more on the statistical side. Uh, most of the inference nowadays with machine learning can be written as an optimization procedure. So yeah, so so if you use sampling and you have a lot of data, most of the time, or if you don't, I mean, depending on the sampling you use, it might take a, a bit more time. Uh, so, but let's consider only optimization. Um, when you write an optimization problem, you want to guess uh, how many variables am I using? Uh, and basically, if you if you have a number of variables that scales linearly with a number of samples, um, it means that it's going to be very expensive in terms of memory to just um, to to fit your model. So you're going to have some memory limitations. And even if you have tons of memory, it still might take a lot of time. If, for example, um, you do some so full batch. So here batch is not biological batch. It just means the way you optimize your data set. Full batch means uh, taking a, optimize, uh, optimize a gradient pass through all the data, which means um, you would uh, average all the data points and take a gradient. So um, if you take a gradient step, or if you take a second order optimization step on all the data set, it's very expensive computationally. Um, and so you can gain some significant speed up by using some stochastic optimization. Um, and uh, the neural networks literature and this VA literature uh, is a way where uh, where you can, in the principled way, use a stochastic optimization. It's called stochastic variational inference. Um, and because of all this um, kind of um, sampling from the variational distribution, subsampling from the data points, uh, we can actually do something that is considerably faster. And so uh, um, there is this, and then uh, there is. Uh, also, the, um, some other method, for example, would consider, uh, in terms of memory footprint, uh, a full cell-by-cell similarity matrix. Um, 
And, and for this type of calculations, you have n square complexity memory. And so it's, it's going to be a nightmare to, to scale this to 1 million cells. So these are, I think, uh, I, I try to explain the main bottlenecks with, uh, with computations. Um, and so basically, even if SCVI is, uh, um, is a very, is, looks like a more complicated model, uh, because of these tricks that we used, uh, stochastic optimization and, uh, de- like amortizing inference, which means, uh, not learning a parameter for each data point, but, uh, parameterizing with a neural net, which is very standard in VAEs. Pretty cool. And in terms of the technologies, what do you use? You mentioned the the, the language uh, plays a role. So what language do you use? What uh, libraries for optimization do you use? Yeah, so here um, uh, there is nothing uh, very original uh, with respect to the culture of the uh, of these uh, VAEs and, and neural network literature. So our, our code base is uh, based on Python. Um, and, uh, we, we rely on, uh, on deep learning libraries, uh, such as, uh, a PyTorch. So all the code bases in PyTorch. And, uh, and we found that, uh, it's a very flexible tool for, uh, for research. And I was actually surprised to see that, uh, I mean, happily surprised to see that there are, uh, uh some others, like single cell, um, uh, people that start using these tools, even for fitting linear models. Um, and I use a stochastic optimization and then can, can do a lot of interesting things, uh, even with, with simple models. Uh, but, uh, start using the tool of, uh, of at least uh, a yeah, stochastic optimization, uh, that can allow for, uh, for, yeah, for a more scalable inference. For example, a, a model in which, um, I would like to give a, a, a little bit of credit, uh, from Sandrine's Judois lab uh, in, um, in, in Berkeley, which is called the Zimbi wave. Which is actually probably the first model to have used is, uh, I mean, okay, in, in single cell data, to my knowledge, uh, this is zero infinity negative binomial distributions. Um, and the way they were fitting the model. So first, I think the model was written in R and it was using some second order optimization method on the full data set. Um, and so these steps are really expensive and this made the model to to be very slow when you had a lot of, a lot of genes and a lot of cells. And so in, in this way, uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that you could have recoded all Zimbi wave, uh, with the stochastic optimization and, uh, stochastic variational inference. And, and it would have been probably as fast as a CVI. I mean, even maybe, yeah, faster. As, as, as. And for uh, variational inference, uh, does PyTorch have anything sort of uh, built in for that, or, or did you have to to implement it on top of PyTorch? Uh, so there are some um, some kind of a subroutine for uh, uh, distributions. So you can, but uh, I mean, it, it's first, it's not. Um, it's actually kind of uh, short. Uh, to, to write, I think, uh, when I wrote, um, so my, the first, to give you an insight, like, uh, uh, the first code for the SCVI manuscript, the one I used for, for the paper, um, I think the main subroutine for fitting the model was like 80 lines of code in TensorFlow. Wow, that's very impressive. A- eight zero. Yeah. So it's, it's really not a lot of code. Um, and the, the, the main, um, the main part of the code was like, uh, I mean, yeah, d- defining this zero-infected negative binomial likelihood, 
Um, and then all, all the rest is kind of uh, pieces of code you, like, uh, that are already used in VAEs and, uh, I mean, yeah, and, and even 80s, it's just really small. Yeah. So then the rest was like all data loading and stuff. And uh, the, the reason for which the database now is like um, pretty big is that we want people to uh, just uh, come in, plug in, and if they want to change um, a zero inflated negative binomial by something else, uh, then they, they they just can. And that's what we would like to to provide for the community also. Sweet. And so the last technical aspect of of your work that uh, I want to, to get to is the... Um, hyperparameter optimization that we uh, talked before. And we talked before um, about it from the perspective of the user, but now I want to consider from the perspective of the implementer. So Gabriel, uh, I believe you, you did that work. So um, how how does this thing work? Um, oh yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so just a disclaimer, um, I um, interfaced um, SCVI with a library that uh, that actually takes care of implementing the uh, the technical um, aspect behind this hyperparameter optimization process, but still I can give some um, some insight, some technical insight on how exactly uh, hyperparameter um, um, research uh, works and how we um, chose to do it. Um, so first of all. Um, the context is is as follows. So you have your um, your model and a, a specific metric and your set of hyperparameter or a, a space of hyperparameters you want to search in, and um, you want to uh, optimize your metric. So in order to actually get uh, one observation point, you're going to have to go through a full training of your model, and uh, that can be very uh, expensive. For instance, for uh, with STVI, uh, training can range from um, a few minutes to um, over an hour if you have a, a very large data set, as Roma mentioned. And for STVI specifically, what hyperparameters are we talking about? Uh, the search space, um, if I remember correctly, is um, model architecture. So number of hidden layers, number of, um, of hidden neurons in those hidden layers, um, dropout probability there is also uh the learning rate of the optimizer and so when when you say the the dropout probability there are <laughs> oh sorry I, th- yeah. I think there no, are two not different to be confused. <laughs> yeah not to be confused with the dropout in the graphical model and cvs graphical model this is the dropout probability for the um for the dropout layers within the neural network with dropout as a, a standard um Process that is used to um, perform uh, regularization in the in neural nets. So yeah, not to be confused with SCVI's dropout event. And um, and uh, that's it for the search space, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, are, are these parameters per neural network? Does each neural network have uh, its own parameters? So for now, um, the way SCVI is implemented, uh, there's a common ground for these parameters for each for every neural network. So they will they will affect all the neural networks within SCVI. But we're working towards uh, making each of the I mean, uh, most of the neural networks uh, fully uh, independent of each other parameter wise. But yeah, as you said, for now there are common parameters with for all of the neural networks. Got it. Okay, so uh, yeah, how does the magic happen? 
So again, um, disclaimer: I'm not uh, the 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 maths are absolutely not mine, and um, the methods that we use are have been existing for a long time, and we rely on a library that uh, that implements it um, in, in itself. But um, so quickly. Um, to perform a hyperparameter search, the simplest methods are a grid search or a random search. Uh, for the former, you're just going to fit a grid, a regular grid, on your search space, and then sample, and then go over that grid and test each um, each tuple of parameters and observe the metric. And then in the end, you're going to select the best set. And for random search, you just randomly sample your, you give yourself a, a budget, a number of, of evaluations, and you randomly sample the search space. So these methods are very, um, are very, very costly, and they scale exponentially with the size of your search space. Um, one, um, one option you have to um, kind of be more, be smarter about, um, about this is to use Bayesian optimization. And that was, that's what we do um, in the CVS tool. So um, basically what happens is you um, you state a surrogate um, model for this expensive process that is uh, training your model and observing the metrics. So for example, this is going to be um, a Gaussian process that is going to represent your, your belief on this, this black box um, um, function. Uh, as we could call it. Um, to be clear, this this function I mentioned, you could call it f, is the f that gives you um, the metric, the observed metric, given a set of hyperparameters. So you, you give a a surrogate um, model for this function f, which represents your belief about it. So that is often a, a Gaussian process. And then you use um, what we call an acquisition function, that relies on this um, model of your black box F to uh, suggest new trials given a, a specific criterion. So, for example, you're going to try, um, given this Gaussian process that mimics your black box F, you're going to try to maximize the expected uh, improvement of the metric for the next trial that you're going to do, that you're going to process. And that's uh, that's the way you're going to generate new trials, and usually these um, acquisition functions are uh, responsible for setting the trade-off between um, how much exploitation are you going to do versus how much exploration you're going to do. And by exploitation, we mean that um, we mean continuing to sample the regions where you know that you're going to obtain a good um, a good um, metric compared to what you've already observed. So, for example, if you um, you've been uh, searching over your search space and you've has you've done some trials with a, a high learning rate and others with a lower learning rate, and you notice that with a lower learning rate uh, you get a better metric. Exploitation means continuing to sample um, towards this low uh, low learning rate region. Exploration, on the other hand, is um, sampling the regions where you have a low confidence on the your density estimate on your on on what you think on your belief so for example if you um <coughs> in between those two learning rates you have an intermediate value and you have not used that value often and don't have a lot of observations that have been um generating using this value you have a low confidence on the 
the the value we estimate for this specific uh, uh, learning rate region. So exploration is going to entice you to uh, generate new trials in this area. Right. So low confidence uh, essentially means very high variance, and yeah. so very high potential for for huge upside. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, before we wrap this up, do you want to talk about uh, any new developments coming from your lab? So uh, SCVI, how old is it exactly? It's been like three years. Um, so I I started working on SCVI uh, summer 2017. Okay, so two years. Two years, yeah, two, two, two big Two big years. It doesn't sound too too long, but it it feels very long in in such a dynamic space, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, single cell is um, such a fast, uh, you know, field uh, that uh, indeed, uh, yeah, it it seems already long. Um, and uh, this has been. Um, uh, if I can um, spend a little bit time, uh, a little bit of time giving credit to to the to the whole you know team. Um, We've been very lucky um, uh, to have been working with uh, with a lot of, of persons uh, overall on, on this big project that is SCVI. Um, so first, um, uh, I started SCVI uh, being mentored by uh, uh, Jeff Regier, uh, Nier Yosef, and Michael Jordan, who are all um, uh, now, uh, Jeff is also a faculty, so world faculties. Um, I'm being advised uh, throughout my PhD by uh, Nier Yosef and, and Michael Jordan. Um, we we've had some graduate students that joined the team, uh, Adam and Chenling, uh, that have been work uh, has been working on Total VI and Scan VI. I will explain later. Uh, and we've been uh, very lucky to have um, uh, amazing master students uh, visiting from uh, from France, uh, from either Ecole Polytechnique or Ecole Normale Supérieure. Um, so we, this year we we had uh, uh, we have Gabriel, Achille, Pierre, and Oscar. Last year we had Edouard and Maxime. Um, and we also had some uh, really amazing uh, undergraduate students that came uh, last year, so Jules and uh, Yening. Um, and this has been very fun to to have this um, uh, overall very so- social project in which we, we try to work uh, all together. Um, so about the n- new model we, we try to work on, uh, for example, there is ScanVI, uh, in which, so I was talking earlier about um, the prior on this um, latent space. And basically, um, ScanVI is an extension of SCVI in which this prior is extended to um, to be a Gaussian mixture model. Um, and this is very interesting because in this scenario, if you know for some of the cells, you know some of the of, of the cell types, then you can basically um, it's very simple with this graphical model to to do some semi-supervised learning, which means um, you can extend this to the scenario of um, I have one data set that for which I know the cell types, one data set for which I don't know. Um, and then you can get a full posterior for all the ob- cells that you didn't observe uh, the cell types. You can have a distribution of like, uh, which cell belongs to which cell type with which confidence. Uh, and, uh, we also, you can also use it in a scenario where, for example, um, um, you have, um, uh, a, a tissue for which the cell types are very, um, how to say, are very hard to distinguish, for example, T-cells, and you have some markers for sub-cell types of T-cells, but you don't know exactly um, uh, which are which, and uh, you can use these markers to have a, to label a small number of cells, maybe uh, 10, 20, but very confidently, 
and then you can leave it to scan VI to classify the rest of the cells. Um, so this is available on BioArchive and now on our, our code base. Um, then we also worked, so ScanVI is, uh, is work with, uh, with Chenlin. Uh, then there is a GIMVI. Uh, so GIMVI is for, um, a gene imputation. Um, and so basically here we try to work with, uh, uh, trying to harmonize and to make work together as spatial transcriptomics with single cell transcriptomics. So for example, um, for fish data, you can observe just, um, a certain panel of genes that is defined beforehand. Um, and, um, it, it makes sense that, um, if you have single cell, uh, transcriptomic data for the same tissue, and this is, but not the same cells, right? Just the same tissue. And then what, what you would like to hope is that, um, if you try to impute a gene that in the sense of the um, covariance matrix, that looks a lot like some of the genes in the, uh, in the spatial panel, then you're going to be able to impute it, uh, for all the cells and you, and you can, uh, visualize it on the, um, uh, on the sp- spatial tissue and you, and you can, and you, and you can detect whether this gene is, uh, spatially differentially expressed or not. And this, uh, so I, for this type of work, I refer to the, to the work of Valentine Svensson, for example. Uh, so this has been work with, uh, with Achille, uh, and with Maxime and, and Jules. Uh, and then there is a total VI. Uh, that is still, uh, work in progress, uh, with Adam. Uh, and in Total VI, we're, we're trying to build a model for, uh, Total Seek, uh, or, uh, what was also called, uh, Side Seek. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and we, we try to model, to build the joint model for uh, the, the protein measurements and the, and the, uh, the gene expression. So basically, Sidesick is an extended single cell RNA sequencing protocol in which uh, you can add antibodies uh, with a poly ATL that is going to to bind uh, to uh, to different uh, proteins, uh, mar- protein markers on the surface, uh, and you can observe. Uh, and doing this kind of model is interesting because um, you're able to pr- to in an unsupervised way to learn um, which uh, in which cell which protein have b- bounded or not. Because you have a lot of background and the, 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 the distributions are actually pretty interesting. And so we're able to re- disentangle the background for the foreground and understand which uh, proteins are binding to which cells. Um, and so this uh, is still work in progress. Uh, but uh, whenever we have um, an algorithm we are happy with, uh, we will also put it on the code base. Pretty cool stuff, guys. And uh, yeah, it's 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 very inspiring that in such a short time uh, you've managed to, to build this tool, which is now pretty much the, the, the classics and the go-to method for uh, so many researchers. So uh, thank you for uh, coming on the podcast and and sharing your uh, perspective on this. Thank you very much for inviting us. Uh, research sometimes can be can be a bit dry, uh, and um, reading a paper is not. Um, might not be the you know uh, the easiest thing to do, and uh, and I think it's a it's a very inspiring exercise uh, for for me and Gabriel to be here today and and try to dig a little bit into the work and uh, give it uh, some details, but also high level. Uh, so we're really happy to to do that, and thank you very much, uh, Roman, for inviting us on the podcast. Yeah, I completely agree with Roman. Additionally, I'd like to mention that it's. It's also a lot of fun to be on this podcast with you, Roman, and that you um, 
you were very helpful uh, with sending this up, and I definitely recommend uh, um, other researchers to come here and talk about their research and, uh, and how cool it is. Thank you. Thank you.